0: Father, we come before you thanking you for your word, thanking you for your spirit. And we ask, oh God, for you to move in us, to lead us to Christ. God, may we center our thoughts around you and may we surrender ourselves unto you. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Ten or so years ago, uh, many of you probably got an email from the Nigerian prince. Anybody remember that Nigerian prince? He wanted to give you millions of dollars if you would just give him your bank account. And as emails circulated around the internet, some of you young guys have no idea who the Nigerian prince is, but he was so popular uh, years ago. And as these hoaxes and lies began to to. Uh, to spread around the internet, uh, there rose a website that helped us to figure out what was true and what was false. Does anybody remember that site? Stephen does. Um, and and oftentimes, if somebody would send me something, hey, is this true? I would send them to a website called Snopes. Still use it. Still use it. Well, you might want to hear this. <laughs> um, Snopes has been known as a fact-checking organization, but of course, uh, fact-checkers also have a worldview, and uh, they have their own ideas on things. And uh, someone that that I have a lot of respect for named Ken Ham, who is the founder and CEO of Answers in Genesis, in fact, we used his Vacation Bible School material this year at RVBS, Uh, he wrote this. In response last year to Snopes, he says, recently Snopes, a popular fact-checking website, disseminated false information with a posting of an anti-Christian commentary with their agenda. An article which had not been fact-checked. Snopes.com posted an article entitled, Why Creationism Bears All the Hallmarks of of a Conspiracy Theory. This article made many false accusations and disseminated false information about Answers in Genesis, me, and other creation apologetic ministries. How could a supposed fact-checking group get away with this? Well, it's quite easy. At the top of the article, an editor stated, This content is shared here because the topic may interest Snopes readers. It does not, however, represent the work of Snopes, Fact checkers or editors. Think of the irony of that statement. In other words, they did exactly what they tell others not to do. They published an article without fact checking. They tried to justify the post. They tried to justify the post by posting the hostile commentary by stating it's an article that they considered without any fact checking for themselves to be of interest to their readers. Obviously, to them, that's okay to pass along information that hasn't been fact checked, but nobody else should dare to do such a thing. What utter hypocrisy! Isn't Snopes.com known for supposedly fact fact-check- checking items in the news to be and to expose false information? When information obscures the truth and readers don't know what to trust, Snopes.com fact checkers. Fact-checking and original investigative reporting is supposed to light the way to evidence-based and contextualized analysis. That's a whole lot of words, but I thought was great for you to see that even the fact-checkers need fact-checkers. So the question I ask for you is, what is your source of truth? What is your source of truth? Is it Snopes? Is it Fox News? Is it CNN? As you see, many people purport the truth, but not many report the truth. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open up to 1 John chapter 5. We will finish 1 John, I think, today. I think i said that last week we will finish first john today before we continue on let me read our verse of the year we're talking about being together in 2022 having fellowship or koinonia together as a church and church you have done so well at this i'm so grateful for you as a church first john 1 5 through 7 this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that god is what Light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have koinonia with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. First John, chapter five, verse 20 and 21. Please turn there and we will read. And we know that the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we might know him who is what? True. And here we go. We're dealing with the truth and we are in Christ. We are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What would Snopes say? Is he the true God and is he eternal life? I dare say they would agree. I dare say many of our fact checkers in our culture today would agree with that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. And that gets me to thinking. And so I ask you the question, how do you determine what is true, truly? You hear things every day and you evaluate things every day. How do you know what's true and what's not? Well, in our culture today and even through the last couple of years, the rise of science has come to To prominence. We have our president or presidents speaking, trust the science. And we should trust the science. But I'm not saying that we should trust the scientists sometimes. We should trust the science. The scientific method is a way of testing things in order to determine, based on testing and trials. An examination what is true. It is there to help us develop a standard of what we can find to be the truth. When I was growing up and I had a paper to write, my family had a set of encyclopedias. We don't do that anymore. But I know that many of you my age and older had a set of encyclopedias. And when I had to write a paper on a bullfrog, I would go to my encyclopedia Americana, I believe it was. Go to my encyclopedia, pull out the bees and look up bullfrog. And they would have an article, maybe this long. If you looked up President John Kennedy, it was 37 pages. But if it was a bullfrog, it was a couple of paragraphs. This is what a bullfrog is. This is his environment. This is where he lives. This is what he eats. This is what he does. That was a source of rock solid truth for me as a student. Well, I ask you as a Christian, what is your rock solid truth? In fact, I'll ask you even a even broader question. How do you know that God is true? And specifically, how do you know that Jesus Christ is the true God other than the Bible tells me so? Or is that enough? What is true? Jesus asked that to Pilate. Pilate, what is the truth? As many of you know, religions contradict. But we know that something is true. Something must be the truth. There is reality out there that governs and defines laws of physics and aerodynamics. There, there is something that is out there that is true. That's why bridges work. And 37 years from now, maybe there will be another bridge near us. Maybe. Because there is a truth. And I ask you, you're in a Christian church this morning. Why do you think that the Christian theology is true? I'll give you a few reasons. Religions, again, contradict, but they they can't all be right. In fact, I saw my neighbors the other night. It was 10 o'clock or something, some time at night, and a group of men outside all together were bowing, rising, bowing, rising, praying. A different religion than me. There are a lot of religions, but there's only one truth. And our culture really wants to believe that everybody has their own what? Truth. Truth. But may I say very clearly and without hesitance that there are not multiple truths. There is the truth. And it does not make sense to to purport that there are your truths. And your truth, and your truth, and my truth. What John says under the authority of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus Christ is the true God. And when you look, you go, well, how does he have the right to be more right than anybody else? Let me give you a few things that I think of. The Christian worldview has has lasted the test of time. It's lasted longer than the Roman Empire, longer than the American experiment... Longer than communism or democracy or any republic. Most systems of religion end up being self-serving and man-serving. Christianity at its center is Christ-serving and Christ-alone-serving. And this church ought to be a Christ-serving church. When you see a church that is self-serving, you see a church that is losing its moorings. When you look at prophecies that are fulfilled, we looked at one in our Sunday school class of even the tree that Jesus was crucified on, which was a Roman form of execution. And yet it fulfilled the Jewish scripture of cursed be the man who hangs on the tree. The fact that they were gambling over Jesus's clothes when he died and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, that was prophesied. That they would pierce his side. The, the hundreds of prophecies that were filled with almost astrono- with certainly astronomical odds that those things could not all be fulfilled in one place. Then you compound that with the fact that in John 539, he says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but Jesus said, And it is they that bear witness about me. I'm the fulfillment of the scriptures is what Jesus was saying. Then you look earlier, just a few verses earlier, Jesus says this. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. First century, a man shows up and says, man, get up and walk. A man who's never walked before and does not have the neural comprehension, doesn't have the paths formed in his brain to walk, gets up and begins to walk. A man born blind, if you know anything about the eye, my cousin's an eye doctor. If you don't see anything by the age of two, you will never see anything. Your brain doesn't know how to see. It can't develop that later in life. Jesus walks up to a man blind from birth and says, see. You see these miracles that Jesus performs instantaneously healing leprous humans. The works that he did... Are enough testimony. They bared witness about who he is. And if that weren't enough, are y'all listening, church? If that weren't enough, they kill him. The greatest country in the world with the greatest military ever known at that time crucifies Jesus with their cruel punishment, tests his death with a spear in his side. Lay him in a tomb and three days later, church, what happens? He rises from the dead. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen then and it doesn't happen now. Dead is dead. And Jesus rose from the grave. What do you do with that? 500 witnesses saw him walking. What do you do with that? You have to do something. What is true? And then, that's enough. But then, you have a 7th grade young man at a youth camp. 40, 30 years ago. Who hears a man preaching about Jesus Died to save sinners and Jesus rose from the dead. And there was nothing I could do to not believe that. There's the personal element. When the Spirit of God awakens and enlightens your soul, you cannot but believe. So why do I believe? Because the evidence is is compulsory because the works are undeniable and because the Spirit of God has transformed my mind to believe it. And I'm not talking about voices in my head. I'm talking about a conviction and an an aliveness You know when something's alive. And I am spiritually alive. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Risen from the grave to confirm His very identity. How did I know that that Allison was the one to marry? How did you know that I was the one to marry? I couldn't. Not know. If you are a Christian, you know you're a Christian. Because you are alive. And you cannot but believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't know, and you are wrestling, you've heard all these things. But maybe you just don't know. Cry out to the Lord, save my soul, give me life, Lord. If you are born again, you are born again. You are alive. Jesus, John said, is the one true God. There are many options, but Jesus is the one true And Christian, no matter how many people around us, you know, Christianity is not the predominant religion in this world, in our country, in our city. No matter how many people around us don't believe that Jesus is true, doesn't change my mind one bit. Not one bit. Romans 3 verse 4 says this, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, you that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Jesus is not a popularity contest. Jesus is God. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. When you know, you know. Now. I hope I've clearly communicated my thoughts on that. Now that John says that there is one true God. He closes his book with this thought. Keep yourselves from false gods. Verse 21 says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. As he's declared that Jesus is the true, he says, now keep yourself from the false. So yesterday I... I polled my family, and I'm going to give you a few answers. I said, what is idolatry? What is idolatry? It's a Bible word. It's a word that's used in the Bible often. But what is it? Like, What is idolatry? Ash, wherever you are, Ash says this, something you love more than God. Nate says, well, anything can be an idol if you make it one. Hannah said, worshiping an idol, that's when something takes priority over God. (laughs) Titus, I have no idea. (laughs) He knows now. Eli, putting something above God. Abby and Ethan prioritizing something over God. And so I asked them, what are some things that that can be an idol to a, a 9, 11, 13, 15 year old? And they gave me these answers video games, sports, Harry Potter body image, a job, money, anything that takes your focus away from the one true God. What if I were to interview your family? What would they say? What if I were to interview you? What would you say? What is something that takes priority over God to you? What are those things that draw your affection? I went to Noah Webster, 1828, my favorite dictionaries. Webster, 1828 says, idolatry is this, the worship of or giving divine honor, divine honor. Special, reserved for God honor to idols, images, or anything made by hands which is not God. It's a pretty good definition. The number two definition. Excessive adoration of something other than God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John gives that to a body of believers and says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. As if that were a temptation for Christians, that idolatry was not just something they did back in ancient Israel, but it was something that was happening in the early church. And friends, I do believe that that happens today and our culture is full of it and our church is full of it as well. If you have your Bible, if you have your your Bible on your phone, wherever you go, this is a place to take notes. The the best biblical example of idolatry I can give to you is in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. If you have your notes, I have a note on my phone that's just called Bible thoughts, Christian thoughts. I take notes of things, things that I think of. I, I leave them on my phone, and every time I come with spiritual warfare, I've got one. Prayer, I've got one. I go to my notes and I look up all the, the scriptures in times, I've got one. This may be one for you, idolatry. Jeremiah two twelve through thirteen. Be appalled, O heavens at this, be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Granny's with me. They have one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is idolatry? Idolatry. Boy, I think this passage does us so well for getting to the root of what idolatry is according to the Lord. It is it's two factors. One is abandoning or forsaking God, and the second is hewing our own cisterns. Let's look at both of those for a moment. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Oh, I love this verse. The illustration of a fountain versus a cistern. What does a fountain do? It continually flows with life-giving water. Dennis knows about a water fountain. He maintained one back here for years and years. And you know what we did? We hooked up the new one to the water source. So that it can continually flow with water. That's what a fountain does. It's a fountain of living water. And that's who God is. And, and idolatry is forsaking the fountain of living water. Forsaking the true and right and good place to, to sustain life. God has revealed himself to us. He has shown his goodness to all of us. He has shown his life-giving fountain to us. And yet, so many have forsaken him for the pleasures of this world. I'll give you another biblical example of somebody, and that was King Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. What did his heart do? His heart turned away from the Lord. And he did not keep doing what the Lord commanded. The second portion. Not only do we forsake God, the living waters. And I find it so ironic that Jesus came and he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread All of these things showing his nature, and yet here we come forsaking that. Secondly, hewing out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, you know what a cistern is, right? Some young folks may not. Hilton asked what I had in my cistern this week. I was carrying around my water jug. A cistern is something that is designed to catch rainwater to store for use. So you could have it out, and and as it rains, it puts water in this giant jug or a tub. Uh, They even use them in Haiti. Today, they put the water on the roof, and that's their shower water, and they heat it in a big tub. Well, what did they do in Jeremiah's day? They forsook the fountain, and they carved out for themselves cisterns. And how does the Lord describe them? What kind of cisterns were they? They were broken cisterns. Cisterns that cannot even hold water. And now, get the picture of what the Lord is telling us. You're forsaking the fountain of life and carving out for yourself something that looks like it can hold water, but in reality, it doesn't. It's a leaky pot. What is idolatry? Idolatry is is turning away from what is right and true and embracing something that is a lie. That is idolatry. Look in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. Even Isaiah talks about it. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and from west. And of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. I think my family had it really close. It's taking something that's not God and making it more precious to us than who God is. That can be a person. It can be a place. It can be a thing. It can be an idea. It can be something very good that becomes too loved by us. Idolatry is forsaking of something true and creating something new. The first of the Ten Commandments, what is it? You shall have no other gods before me, right? Y'all know that? The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. At some point in every person's life, we are idolaters. And the penalty for idolatry... Is the curse of God. It's the wrath of God. And for all of those who do not repent of their idolatry, as he says here, do not forgive them. All those who live under the, the mantle of idolatry will bear the wrath of God for all eternity. That is what Jesus said, not me. But Jesus also said, all those who are willing to repent and believe and understand that God loves sinners even before they loved him. And all those who will love God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, God will redeem. God has purchased and will save from the wrath to come. Do you believe? Will you be saved from your sin? Will you be saved from your idolatry? Jesus is offering. Come to me. Come and be saved. But you cannot be saved and continue to be an idolater. You cannot be saved and continue to live by the way of the world. You must come and be made new in Christ. Y'all still with me? Yeah. I got one more thing to share with you about idolatry. Which we put together as a family last night. Colossians 3.5. This is big. Colossians 3.5. I I think this will help you. This is one of those things you go, ah, light bulb. Colossians 3.5 says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and, help me out, covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, that's interesting. How is covetousness idolatry? Hmm. Well, what is covetousness? That's another Bible word that we don't use very often, is it? Back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not what? Covet. Covet thy neighbor's wife. Covet thy neighbor's ox, mule, donkey. So what does it mean to covet? Covet. Well, when you covet something, that is desiring something so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Have you ever coveted? It happens often. There are men coveting other men's wives all the time. And wives coveting other Wives, husbands, all the time. One of my children yesterday snuck up beside another one of my children and reached in his pocket and swiped his phone out of his pocket because he wanted to use the phone. Coveted. You want something so bad that you're willing to take it. Now, okay, how is that idolatry? Let me read to you from the New King James Word Study Bible, which I love. The, here's covetousness. These attitudes and actions stem from an arrogant, self-centeredness that is insatiable, unsatisfiable. Excessive, aggressive, and all too willing to harm others to get what it craves. Self-centeredness. Within the New Testament, this term is always negative and showing up in three vice lists or sin lists. While usually referring to immoral desire for material possession, it can also refer to immoral sexual desire and there's more self-centeredness covetousness comes back to the faith the place where something is an idol so let me ask you what is that something what becomes an idol over god when you are coveting something I'm a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien and his writings. He's an incredible writer. And in his Lord of the Rings, he has a character named Smeagol. Can you Smeagol for me, Eli? Smeagol was a, a nice young man who found something that he really, really wanted. And over the process of living many, many years, Smeagol turned into the epitome of what a covetous person is, what an idolater is. Smeagol turned into a nasty character with split personalities, and one of them... He named himself Gollum, or he got named Gollum. And Gollum wanted the ring. He found a ring, and he wanted that ring more than anything else in the whole world, and he was willing to do anything to get the ring. And he would say, we want it, we need it, we must have the precious. They stole it from us, sneaky little hobbitses, wicked chicksy. He followed around the hobbits because they had this ring and they were on a course to destroy the ring. And the one place it could be destroyed was way far off in this mountain of Mordor. With this lava pit, and it's the place where it was formed, and it was the only place it could be destroyed. And Gollum, Smeagol, followed around this company. He even befriended the little hobbits that were trying to destroy it. And if you haven't read it by now, I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm sorry. Near the end of the book and the end of the journey, Gollum steals the ring from Frodo Baggins and begins dancing around in the book. And he's so delighted that he finally got the precious that he gets near the edge and he falls, begins falling into the fire. And on his way down, Tolkien writes this, Gollum cried, precious, 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 my precious, precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavering for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek, he fell. Out of the depths came his last wail, precious, and he was gone. Fires licked, leaped up and licked the roof. Jesus Christ is the true God. Jesus Christ is the precious. Jesus Christ is my precious. He is what we live for. He's what we surround our life for. He's what we're willing to die for to obtain. Oh, Christian, what is your precious? What is it that's so precious to you that you're willing to revolve your entire life around this thing? Is it Jesus Christ, the Lord? Jesus knew what he was saying when he said this. What is the greatest commandment? When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said this, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? He is the great precious. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you've given us your son. You have shown him to us. He is our precious. Father, may no other things come near to our heart and steal our affections. Oh, Father, may Jesus be preeminent in our lives as Christians and may this church Rise or fall on Jesus Christ being the Lord. And we will proclaim our precious Lord. He saves sinners who repent. And may we give our lives to service in this church, in this community, and beyond. That we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the precious, for Jesus Christ. Oh God, fill us with your spirit. Awaken lives, awaken souls and bring us bring us to the cross where we might worship with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.